Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, October the 7th, 2021, and I've got a good show for you today because it's an expert council Q&A show. We've got some council members we hear from often, some we haven't heard from in a while. Good variety of stuff today. What do I mean variety? Well, check this out. Sean Mills We'll talk about Iron Air batteries. It's not Iron Edison, um, which is a really great old-school technology. Iron Air, a brand-new battery type that claims it's going to revolutionize the power industry. Will it? Well, Sean will talk to you about it. Tim the Tool Man Cook will talk about choosing a set of booster cables for your car and a portable tire inflator, two really good things to have on hand. Derek Bonpietro will answer the question, do you really need to ground portable generators? Do you really? Just because the... Uh, The uh, owner's manual says so. Is it, they just cover in their asses. Well, Derek will talk about that. Paul Wheaton has a rocket mass heater update from Montana. They have a rocket mass heater jamboree type meetup going on up there. And there's some TSP folks on site. You'll even hear from a couple of them in that segment. John Pugliano is uh, going to talk to you about, is now the time to hold or sell or buy oil stocks in the current marketplace? Ken Berry is going to talk about, you know, is there such thing as a good protein bar in the keto world? I'll give you a completely different alternative than a bar, um, and Ken will as well. And then I have thoughts on a quote of the day. I'll give you the quote of the day now uh, so you can think about it, and then we'll wrap things up with it. This is from William James. The greatest use of a life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. Think about that. The greatest use of your life would be to spend it on something that will outlast your life, that will outlast you, that will be here when you're gone, to leave a legacy, as I talk about so often. So I will wrap things up with thoughts on that quote of the day today. Let me remind you guys, if you uh, have not yet joined the Member Support Brigade, please consider doing so. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members, and then you can learn all about it. You can see all the discounts you get. You can sign up. It's 50 bucks a year. Use the discounts, get your money back, and support the show at about 20 cents an episode. With that, let's dig on into it. Sean Mills on Iron Air Batteries. Are they going to be all they're cracked up to going to be? Because you can't actually get them yet. Hey, guys. It's Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, and I've got a question from Dylan about the Iron Air Battery. So Dylan says, Sean, uh, Form Energy, a company in Massachusetts, claims to have developed an Iron Air Battery with commercial costs as low as $20 per kilowatt hour. If that really comes to market, that would knock the socks off of current battery prices. The purported benefit of the tech, besides price, is a very long discharge cycle, 100 hours at rated discharge. The basics are that the battery uses a redox or reduction oxidation cycle, letting a bunch of small iron pellets rust with oxygen exposure and then reversing that process. I assume based on some reading and a couple links that the oxidation is the discharge cycle and the battery recharges with whatever generation input via some kind of electrolysis to reduce the rust back to iron. They have backing from a steel producer, which makes sense, as well as Bill Gates. I'm curious to hear Sean's thoughts. Dylan. 
Uh, hey, Dylan, thanks for sending the question in. I have looked at this technology in the past, um, as Inform Energy has been getting some good publicity recently uh, because they just signed a deal to put one of these systems in Minnesota for Green River Energy. Uh, the system's supposed to come online in 2023. And at that point, I think we'll find out pretty quickly whether or not it can do what it, say, it says it can do. Uh, it is a very interesting technology in that it uses a much more widely available material to create a battery source with a longer discharge cycle and looks like it can be built pretty much anywhere. Uh, that's helpful because it would allow a utility operator uh, to buy energy as much as a week in advance of incoming bad weather at cheaper rates than energy will be produced during the bad weather. Uh, you'd have an opportunity, for example, to buy wind generation from Illinois at night when demand is low and then put that energy back on the grid in the afternoon. People get home from work uh, over the course of several days to fill any gaps that you might end up with between your base load and peak at a much cheaper cost than ramping up any other type of production. Now, they don't tell us what's included in that $20 for a kilowatt hour. Uh, if that's just the battery and I need to build a climate-controlled storage facility with a massive electrical infrastructure in Minnesota dedicated to the facility that costs 20 times what the batteries cost, then, well, we're not as attractive. You know, that being said, according to a U.S. Department of Energy report from last year, the projected cost of other storage technologies from 2020 to 2030 are... Uh, you know, your your best one is compressed air storage, um, in, in, or compressed air storage, uh, which is estimated to be the lowest cost, and it's at $119 per kilowatt hour, so five times higher, and it's highly dependent on being near a naturally occurring cavern that reduces the overall project costs. Um, pump storage hydro, so that's where we take the water, we use electricity uh, to pump water into a holding tank that's then at a later date or time run through a hydro dam type project uh, like we have in Tennessee on Raccoon Mountain has a cost of about $262 per kilowatt hour. On the battery side, um, you know, a 100 megawatt 10 hour battery system uh, lithium iron phosphate is about $356 per kilowatt hour. Lead acid is right there at about $356 per kilowatt hour. Um, lithium iron nickel manganese cobalt is at uh, $366 per kilowatt hour. And a vanadium redox flow battery is at $399 per hour. So everything's in the, all the battery systems are in the three to $400 per kilowatt hour. And the other thing about all of these systems is that, you know, they have different upfront capital costs. Uh, the costs change if you're looking at a four hour or a 10 hour or a hundred hour or a thousand hour drawdown. You know, the depth of discharge you can get for the different types of battery technologies, the number of cycles, your round trip efficiency changes based on the size of the installation. You know, so learning rates, if I am installing a 10 megawatt system versus a hundred megawatt system, well, I'm going to learn things that's going to increase my productivity, let's say around 20 megawatts. Well, on a 10 megawatt system, that learning does not ever get applied to the system, whereas for a 100 megawatt system, now three quarters of the project get done at a more productive rate. Um, so lots of different things, and, and this is why I'm really excited about the, the R&D that I think we're gonna see over the next you know four to 
eight years, I guess, depending on the political climate, on specifically storage because there are a lot of different interesting technologies out there. We just need to start using them and seeing which ones work and changing up the ones that don't. Um, I was involved in a project years ago in Mississippi for a company called Keyor that was going to take uh, biomass and turn it into basically, you know, essentially barrels of, of oil to be refined into fuel and gasoline or uh, 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 jet fuel and gasoline. And it was a great idea and it was really interesting and the technology worked. It just wasn't ever at the point to where it could be cost competitive. Um, and you know, we, I was really excited about that job when I was out there insulating pipe. Uh, and then five years later, you know, the company's in bankruptcy cause they lied to the investors and they never could do what they said they were going to do. So the point is, is we need to get these technologies rolled out at least at small scale so that we can pressure test them and see what actually works. I continue to think that behind the meter storage that's in the house, but owned and operated by the local power company is probably the biggest game changer that we can employ right now. But this type of utility scale storage would have a significant impact. And you know, let's get serious. It keeps the power in the hands of the generation and distribution companies, which have a lot more lobbying power than the individual consumers. You know, that being said, I'm very excited about this and a lot of the other technologies that are kind of in the same vein. Uh, I talked about a flywheel technology, you know, several months back. Uh, again, using more readily available components. And, you know, if it works the way that they say it does and the costs are what they say it's going to be, yeah, it's absolutely going to be a game changer because solar and wind are already the cheapest levelized cost of energy types of production. So you put those together with a really, really cheap storage capability, and now all of a sudden you have the ability to run, you know, in my opinion, uh, a, a nuclear-only baseload with small pockets of natural gas and then have renewables for everything else. Um, so interesting times and, and definitely interesting to hear about these new technologies. Well, guys, get these uh, questions into me. I will continue to get them answered and get them back to Jack. Good stuff from Sean. Next up, we have a segment from Tim Toolman Cook on choosing booster cables for your vehicle. And a portable tire inflator, which are again are both really important uh, items to have in your vehicle, in my opinion. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back to answer some more questions for the expert council, so let's dive right in. Okay, so the first question comes from Jim, and he asks, what should a person look for in a set of booster cables? Well, the first thing I look for is, for the most part, longer is better. No one's ever said, man, I sure wish these booster cables were shorter. Because really, two reasons. The first is, almost always, when you go to boost a vehicle, it's going to be in an inopportune spot. It's probably going to be nose in at Costco, and you've got to pull up behind it, get as tight as you can to it, and then run your booster cables from there. That's the first part. And the second part is a safety issue. So say you come up behind, say your kid calls you and says, hey, dad, I need you to come out on the interstate and boost me. My car just died. So, of course, they don't have working hazard lights. So what you can do is you can park behind them with your hazard lights on, pull out a bit so you give yourself a bit of a safe space and still boost them from there. So really important, look for something 
you know, the longer the better. I keep a set of 25 footers on hand. And then next, of course, is the thicker, the better. Now with booster cables, the smaller the gauge, the smaller the number, the smaller, the larger the gauge of the wire is. So again, you're looking for a set of booster cables that can handle, you know, uh, either prolonged charging or a, uh, a high amount of electricity going through them. And you don't want them burning up, melting, twisting, cracking, anything like that. A The ones that come in a cheap, you know, sometimes they give them away for free at like safety events and stuff, those roadside assistance kits. Those can actually be worse than having none at all because they're so thin that if they're not used properly or you put too much power through them, they can end up melting or causing a fire. I prefer, I use a one gauge because it's thick enough that it's really good, but it's not nearly as expensive as the zero gauge. So that's something to look at. Heavy duty clamps. The harder they are to open and close, the better they're going to hold on to the battery. Look for some that are really nice and painted so that the chances of, um, you know, crossing them and shorting something out or, or getting yourself a good shock is a lot slimmer. That's important. And for us up here, look for a set that are good in all temperatures. Uh, it gets down to minus 40 here. And I had some when I worked in the oil patch that when it would get cold enough, the outside coating on them would get brittle and break. Again, those giveaway ones tend to have more of a plasticky coating than an all temperature rubber coating. So look for that. Also, Make sure, well, in theory, that they're UL rated. Of course, sometimes on Amazon they can say it and then they show up and you don't know, but they have a UL listing on them. But at least it means they've been tested and they're safe. Now, one other consideration, and this is a point of contention between people. In an ideal world, you would buy all copper because they're better. They're, uh, they just conduct better. They're a better quality. The whole works. However, they can be two and three times the cost. For me personally, I've used copper clad aluminum simply because I can buy a bigger gauge of wire for a lot less money, about two thirds less. So it's something to consider. Do your research on that. I personally don't mind using copper clad aluminum for the thicker gauges, but some people don't like it. And if you want to buy something top of the line, go out with all copper wiring. It's going to cost you two to three times as much but you know you have a top quality product. And continuing on the automotive section of tools, I had another question from a user this week, and they asked, Luke, over on YouTube, asked, what portable air compressor do you recommend to go along with a um, portable tire repair kit? And I know it's going to be a surprise, but I really love my DeWalt inflation station. That thing has blown me out of the water. I That is probably the single most often used tool of my DeWalt cordless stuff. It's faster than my old hot dog compressor. It's way quieter than a standard air compressor. You don't, definitely don't need to wear ear protection for that. It runs on the standard DeWalt 20 volt batteries and it's small enough. It's, of course, it is definitely bigger than those tiny little uh, 12 volt cigarette lighter ones that you can put under your back seat, but it's still small enough that if we're going more than an hour out of town, it's easy for me to just throw it underneath the back seat. The thing is, fast and quick. It'll inflate tires way quicker than you would expect. And one other really cool feature with it, if you're like me and you don't like inflating, say, pool toys or inflatable play toys for the kids or air mattresses, it has a, um, a high volume setting on it as well, which makes really quick work of inflating anything. 
And DeWalt isn't the only one. Makita makes a nice one. Milwaukee makes a nice one. I just have a lot of experience with that, and it has become my go-to. I actually eliminated my hot dog compressor simply because this thing is so efficient, fairly quiet, and way quicker than any of the other ones on the market that I've looked at as far as the automotive, just throw them under your back seat and forget about them. So for what it's worth, I hope you, I hope that helps you. If you end up trying it out, let me know. Okay, guys, that's it for me this week. If you want to know more about who I am, run by toolmantim.co. You can find everything over there, the monthly newsletter, the weekly podcast, my social media links, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And drop by Sunday evenings. We moved it an hour early. It's now 7 o'clock Mountain Time, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, so we can get more people in there for the live stream talking tools. We've had a lot of fun lately. My wife and I did a segment last night on uh, tips for saving money getting started setting aside food. We had a guy on, we had Chicken Hawk on recently talking about solar power and a ton of tool discussion. So drop by some evening, say hello and interact on the live stream. Thanks guys. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy and have a great week. So next up, you go out and you buy yourself a portable generator and you've probably seen portable generators run all over the place. You go to trade shows, you see them all over the place, sitting in parking lots, running and you know helping out food trucks and stuff like that. They're never grounded, and you get one. Then you're being diligent, so you read your owner's manual. As my good friend, a, a, a gentleman named Tim, not the Tim you just heard from, but a, a gentleman I grew up with, went to high school with. Uh, Tim used to call it the destruction manual. So you read the destruction manual, and it says you must ground this piece of equipment when you're using it. What is the deal with that? Are they covering their ass? Is it a real thing? Do you need to worry about it? With that, Derek Bonpietro, who knows a little bit about generators. Hey, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. If you're looking for an inexpensive DC generator, check out that site. I've got a question from Fred about AC generators and grounding, so let's get into it. Question, do I really need to ground my when... 56235i generator. Let me clarify, that's just a portable suitcase-style inverter generator. Details. The manual says to attach a grounding wire from the generator to a copper, brass, or steel grounding rod that is driven into the earth. I'm willing to ground the generator if needed, but it would be inconvenient if I were using the generator on a driveway, sidewalk, deck, or other area without ready access to the ground. I can't tell if grounding is really necessary or just a CYA from the company found something online that says a generator does not need to be grounded if appliances are plugged directly into the generator and all components of the generator are bonded to the frame. I don't know if number two is true for my generator, but if it matters, I used a multimeter to determine that the neutral and ground wires are not bonded to each other on my generator. Really confused and hope you can help. Thanks, Fred. All right, Fred. This is the dreaded ground situation with portable generators. So let's just back up and kind of talk about the purpose of ground, how the electrical system is laid out, and then what we can do about this with a portable unit. Now, a single leg 120 volt generator like Fred has, you have a hot leg, which is 120 volts, you have a neutral leg, which is the return current path, and then you have a ground. So, 120 volts on the hot leg, that's the black wire, goes out to the load, so your appliance, and then the neutral, which is white, returns that current. So, the same amount of current goes out and comes back on both of those wires, but the hot side is 120, the neutral side is zero volts. So there's no electrical potential because the load used it up. Now, if that load were to short circuit and it had like a metal casing or something like that, 
the electrical potential, the voltage, can go through the ground conductor, which is green or bare copper, and return back to the source of electricity. So that way it doesn't return through you, which can become the return path. So if you're touching it and you're standing on something or touching something else that's conductive, that electricity could potentially go through you, i.e. killing you, going back to the source of electricity. So we put the ground wire in there so that way the unit is safe. So that's the little circular prong on the outlet plug that you're looking at. You got the big and the little guy, then you got the round guy, that's the ground. A house has what we call split phase 240 volts. So you actually have two hot legs, which are opposite of each other. So each one of those is 120 volts. But if you go between the two of them for your bigger devices like electric stoves, you know, heaters, things like that, it's 240 volts. So that's how your house works. Uh, that's how a bigger portable generator works. But you only get half of that, 120 volts, on a smaller generator. Now, we've kind of described the purpose of ground. A house has a ground rod driven into the ground. So that's your, your metal, typically a like copper or brass style rod, hammered directly into the ground. And then you have a, uh, a wire conductor that goes from that into the ground circuit inside of the main panel. Now, before we go further, let's talk about uh, ground bonds. So inside the main panel, if the main breaker's there, or if you have a main breaker out near the meter, the neutral and the ground are what's called bonded together. So there's a conductor that jumpers between those two bus bars in the circuit and connects the two together, and that's usually at the location of wherever the main breaker is in your system. So, so if your meter's outside and your panel's right next to it in the basement or inside the house, the, the bond is typically in the main panel. If you have a panel that's far away, I think it's like over 10 feet, uh, you've got to have a disconnect at the meter or next to the meter, and then the bond is in that location. So that location is kind of where the magic happens during a short circuit. Now, when we install a whole house generator, a, a partial like multi-circuit backup generator, or even a portable generator, we have a transfer switch, which is switching only the hot legs from the utility, which is now out, over to the generator circuit. So there's two contactors in there, hot one, hot two. The neutral and the ground simply carry from the generator outside through the transfer switch into the main panel. So, for example, if the generator or the cabling were to short circuit, the electrical current, the, the potential voltage, travels into the ground conductor through the transfer switch back to the main panel or the disconnect and you're not going to get shocked. So in this situation neutral and ground at the generator, doesn't matter if it's a big home standby or portable, cannot be bonded together at that location, at that source. They must be bonded at the service disconnect or the main breaker in the panel. If you have a generator that has a bonded ground or bonded neutral to ground at the generator. Now you have two locations, and that's illegal and unsafe because you can have current traveling back and forth on the ground conductor, which we don't want. Now, a home standby is not going to have a bonded neutral. A portable generator, depending on what its application is, can be bonded or unbonded. So most of the time, your residential stuff is going to be unbonded. Job site generators typically have GFCIs with a bonded ground, but it's really up to the person that's going to install it or use it to determine which one they have and correct the situation if it's not the right one. So what does that involve? If you pull the cap off the end of the alternator, you're gonna see a ground jumper wire 
and it's typically going from neutral to the casing on the alternator. So in the event where they're tied together, you would undo that wire, so that way you're removing the neutral. Some generators may be different. There might be a jumper somewhere else. Again, that's like, you know, consult your owner's manual or talk to the manufacturer. But either way, if we're using it for some type of emergency standby power on a house, we must remove the jumper on the ground wire if it's present. Now, if you're using a portable generator and it's not going to a structure, the electrical code really doesn't care much about it. You can, in theory, drive a ground rod in to use your portable generator. There is a typically a stud on the panel where you can connect a conductor for the ground wire. But all the code cares about is that if you're using a portable generator in and of itself and you're plugging directly into it, so you've got your lights or fridge or whatever plugging into it, that must be bonded to the frame, and then you're legal and quote-unquote safe. Realistically, out in the field, nobody cares. There are plenty of portable generators with unbonded neutrals, operating in a standalone situation, nobody's dying, nobody really cares. So what Fred is describing is using an ohmmeter, and you're going to use the test leads, plug them into one of the outlets on the generator, you're going to go to the neutral and the ground terminal on the outlet, and if you don't know those, you can just look up, just type in, you know, NEMA 15 amp, and you'll see a picture of the outlet, and identify what conductors are what, Test them. If you have continuity, you've got a bonded neutral. If you have infinite continuity, that means you have an unbonded neutral. And that'll give you an idea what you can use it for. And if you need to reverse it, there is a procedure for it. Just check with the manufacturer. I would say if you're unbonded, you're probably good for either one. You can power a transfer switch for a house with it legally and safely. You can use it for standalone applications. Just be aware, like if you're operating in the rain or there's a short circuit potential, the generator's not grounded correctly, and potentially you could get zapped or killed. If you're the other way, if you have a bonded neutral, you're good for standalone applications, but you're not good for connecting to a transfer switch on a house. So really, you don't want to do that because then you have other issues that are happening. So you, realistically, you got to make sure which way it's configured and for your particular application, configure it correctly. So obviously, do everything legal to code so you don't get injured, but personally, I use either one in either situation. When connected to a house, I'm legal. When standalone, I really don't care either way. But then again, I'm not operating metal cased drills in the rain, standing there next to the generator, potentially producing a bad result. So just keep that in mind, Fred. All right. Thanks for the questions, guys. Any other generator questions, get them over to Jack. He'll get them over to me. We'll get you an answer. Take care. Yeah. I'll just add like, I've seen in my life well over a thousand times have to had to do, done it over a hundred times myself portable generator set up running something like power tools or running lights or whatever on job sites uh, to keep lights on in the house during a power outage whatever i grew up in a house where we had a generator because well if the power went out it sucked so we had a generator i've had a generator i've had multiple generators for as long as i've been doing tsp and longer than that I have never grounded a portable generator. I've also never fed one into a structure, into a panel box or something like that. It's different, as Derek did a great job with. But the idea that you're going to take your, you know, 4,000 watt, 4, 2,000 watt, whatever portable generator, and every time you use it in any way, ground it, you can. But I agree with the original concept. It's really a pain in the ass, and it's not necessary. But they're not going to get sued for saying to do more than you need to in an owner's manual. They might get sued for saying less than they could have said in an owner's manual, even if 
the reasoning behind it doesn't work out. There's a lot of litigation in this country. Everything's litigious, so people are trying to cover their ass every way they can. So by just saying that, you know, if you do hook it up to your home and you do have a code violation or you have a problem or the house burns down, they're not going to get sued. All right. With that, let's hear from Rocket Mass Heater Festivus in the mountains of Montana, Paul Wheaton, with some TSP people with him. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. We're talking here today from the Rocket Mass Heater Jamboree. I've got at least three Jack people here, people that listen to your podcast, two of whom are willing to say their name. Eric from Kansas. JR from Wyoming. And and Cheryl is shy. (laughs) And now she's turning red. Okay. But we've got like, I don't know, I think there's 30-some people here, and we're building all kinds of rocket mass heater stuff. I tried to make a quick list of, of what all we're doing. One thing is, is we got a uh, $1,500 testometer here, and we've been going around testing the rocket mass heater to see how clean they burn. Uh, a really cool thing that we had happen is that uh, this guy, Sky Huddleston, from Liberator Rocket Mass Heaters. It's a UL-listed rocket mass heater that people can buy right now. Um, he was here. He installed one. And uh, for people that might be listening to your podcast that are outside the United States, over in Europe, uh, the, the Bulgarians have the Gamera rocket mass heater, and Sky installed that too. We were going to have a bunch of people at this event from Europe, but the, the government said, no, thank you. No people coming over here from Europe. Uh, no way. So they didn't come. They're not here. I did get to talk to the inventor of the Bulgarian via uh, a video talk with Uncle Mud. It was really yeah. cool. It was nice to, nice to meet the guy. I understand Lisa. I don't see Lisa right now, but uh, that Lisa actually speaks Bulgarian. She, she does some, and she actually uh, she apparently actually worked over there for a period of time. Yeah. So, so they had a, quite a conversation. About, that was quite a hoot. They were kind of not expecting that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we got to, to do – they've got a, a, a commercial rocket mass heater that they sell over there. We've got a lot of conversations here about – uh, building codes and insurance and stuff like that, and there's been so much progress in the last few years on the rocket mass heater front. Sky wanted to make sure that we knew that his his rocket not only is it UL listed, it's also code compliant and can be attached to code compliant mass. Yeah, yeah, and he's getting a he's getting into a lot of places um, where it's all code approved and all insurance approved and stuff. So lots and lots and lots of progress in that space. He did fire up our rocket mass heater up in the Fisher-Price house, and uh, he believes, he said, I think his words were the best rocket mass heater he's ever used. And now he's talking about coming out with a new product, but I think I shouldn't say any more. These are, these are his I, – I, I didn't sign an NDA or anything like that, but I kind of feel like maybe I should shut up now. <laughs> All right, we've done a lot of testing, and we're getting a lot of interesting numbers. The testometer is a cool thing, but I think that the primary test that we use, it's even more important than the test than this $1,500 contraption is the eyeball test, like do we see smoke? That's been our primary test. Um, next thing is is that uh, we're putting in an 8-inch pebble-style rocket mass heater in the solarium. I believe it's... Now can run fire as of last night? Yeah, we're going to fire it up today. Um, we're going to be putting the final touches on it. Okay, all right. One of your juice box designs. Right. We're using a new design. I mean, in the world of rocket mass heaters, I believe that there's mountains of space for optimization. And so this is actually um, uh, Uncle Mud, who's here. 
he came up with the strategy, came up with the design, and he's using it in his home, having great success. I'm I'm the guy that that named it, so <laughs> but I call it the juice box. So basically, uh, uh, a narrower pipe goes down in through a fatter pipe, and the narrow pipe is the exhaust, the vertical exhaust, and the fatter pipe is going to act as a poor man's stratification chamber. And so the narrower pipe goes through the fatter pipe, through the duct, and it goes in low, so it's pulling the cooler gases from the bottom of the duct. And so we're going to do a lot of experimenting with that this year and see how it works. So far, we've, we've had a couple of installations of it, and it seems like it's going to be a, a strong success. Um, the uh, uh, rocket cooktop uh, with Lorena. Now, the Lorena is an interesting option where uh, the heat comes up from the J-tube and hits the bottom of the pot directly. There's not like a cooktop. It hits the pot directly, and it also heats the pot from the walls, the sides of the pot. And uh, um, But because of that, and, and the pot sits pretty, pretty, has a real good fit going into its special little hole where this happens. And then the, the remaining gases then go under a standard cooktop like what we've got up in Allerton Abbey. Um, now, the thing is, is this has to be an outdoor kitchen. I, I cannot imagine doing a Lorena-style cooktop in an indoor kitchen. So, that we, so we're building an outdoor kitchen. We picked a spot to be an outdoor kitchen, and we're building it. Uh, it's looking really beautiful. Um, but, I, but I don't think it'll be fired up. Um, for, might be fired up today. Um, I see people who are working on the project nodding. There's Rodney. Give him thumbs up. Yes. Yeah. He's, you, they can't hear you from over there. Rodney says that maybe, <laughs> maybe today, from far away. Lunchtime. Oh, okay. Meat. So this is day five? Six. six. Day six. This is day six of our nine-day event. Um, and so uh, that'll be exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, another project is the solar food dehydrator with rocket assist. I saw it fired up last night. So it's got a glass front to be a solar food dehydrator, but a lot of times your harvest is happening uh, at the end of the season, and so, uh, you know, it's a little cooler, and the, and the days are shorter. And it's like, uh, so you get your food in there, and you're trying to get it to dry, and the sun is hitting it and everything, and then nighttime rolls around. And so now we'll have one of these solar food dehydrators with a rocket assist. You put a couple uh, twigs in there and fire it up, and it'll keep drying that food through the night. They've also using rocks in that unit for heat, so they're they're off they're off emitting some of the radiation into the rocks. They're hoping that will also do that. I think the the problem they're having right now is just cooling it down a little bit. It, it, it burns a little hot. <laughs> Ooh, okay, all right. And we don't want to cook the food; we just want to dehydrate. <laughs> yeah, food. yeah, an important difference. So uh, another project is the rocket sauna. Um, I believe that the the rockety part of the rocket sauna is at 100% right now. They're just putting the benches in there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if people were in there sauna-ing tonight. And I see person over there nodding his head like, yes, tonight. Tonight is, is the people bake. Okay. All right. I know that the minute that's done, that the next project that Christina's working on is going to be a tiny house, six-inch cob-style rocket mass heater and so a lot of people are going to be going up and doing that all right i think i'm out of time anybody else got any quick comments <clears throat> nope all right thanks jack 
All right, next up. To sell or not to sell? To hold or not to hold? To buy or not to buy? Now, this is the questions, but the questions here pertain to stocks and oil companies. With that, John Pugliano. Hello, TSP. We have an investing question from Darren in Missouri. Darren's question is, do you recommend holding or selling oil stocks right now? Do you see demand climbing with COVID reopening? He goes on to mention the specific oil stocks that he owns, and he says that crude oil is at a five-year high, and he's wondering if he should just take profits on his oil companies now or wait to sell them. Well, Darren, I own a number of oil stocks, and for now, I don't have any long-term plans to sell them. You're correct that oil is at a five-year high, but if you look at most of the oil companies, their stocks are well off, not only the highs that they saw back in 2018, but the overall oil industry has been in a secular decline since 2014. If you remember back during the commodity collapse that happened in 2015 and 2016, the oil industry has never gotten back to those levels. A lot of it has to do with ESG investing and where a lot of people think the energy and the automobile industry will go with alternative energy and electric vehicles. But what I've always said during this transition away from fossil fuels is that it isn't something that's going to happen overnight, and that given current technology, although we've made significant advances in lower-cost alternative energies like solar and wind, the bottom line is that not only is the energy density of petroleum so immense, but also the reserves of petroleum products are so vast that unless there are significant lower-cost reductions in alternative energies... The use of fossil fuels is not going away anytime soon. That's why over the years I've tried to buy oil company stocks whenever they've dipped. They've been wonderful dividend payers. And then in times like we're seeing right now, when there is an energy crunch, you can see how quickly the price of these companies can appreciate. That's really the reason you hold them and buy them when they're low, so that you can take advantage of bottlenecks in the system like we're seeing right now. I don't know how much higher the price of oil will go itself. That's really determined by OPEC Plus and really by Saudi Arabia and Russia. So far, they've been extremely good at showing discipline and curtailing production so that the supply and demand of energy products have been pretty much in a line. I think that Saudi Arabia learned its lesson back in 2015 and 2016 when they tried to cut prices and undercut the shale oil producers in the United States. The government of Saudi Arabia needs oil prices to be about $80 a barrel just for them to fund their government deficits. So I think that they are going to try and do everything they can to keep oil prices high. And then the real upside to this, again, isn't so much in the price of oil, but if the level can stay at where it is, then I think the stock price of oil companies will be reevaluated because they could go up another 20% from where they are right now and still be significantly off of their peak prices from 2018. And that's not even close to the peak prices that we saw in oil company stocks back in 2014. So I do think that there's easily another 15 to 20% of upside, if not significantly more. I own companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron. I also own the oil ETF, XLE. And then for some of the smaller players, I own Valero, which is more of a gasoline company than an oil company. And then really my best performing stock is the most volatile of them. It's a second tier player, Devon Energy. 
They've done extremely well recently, and a lot of this has to do not so much with the price of gasoline, but with the price of natural gas. If you've been watching that, you've seen that more than double. Companies like Devon are major players in the shale oil patches. They're awash in natural gas, and they're really taking advantage of these increasing prices. So for now, I have no plans to sell my oil stocks as long as OPEC Plus holds their discipline and doesn't flood the market with oil. I think prices could stay high through at least the summer of 2022 and a real driver for the demand for petroleum products that we're going to see as we continue to have a COVID reopening is going to come from aviation fuel and air travel. Right now, I think domestic air travel in the U.S. is still down by more than 20% and global air travel is down by more than 60%. So as long as OPEC Plus doesn't ramp up too quickly to meet that demand in aviation fuel, I think oil companies can have a significant ride for the next eight months or so. Now, I just want to finish up here with a quick overall market review. I know a lot of people are really worried right now because they hear the pronosticators predicting all kinds of gloom and doom and stock market crash in October. I'd say that most of the people that are predicting an October market crash are the same people that were wrong about predicting a September market crash. So the reopening has been slower than anticipated, but we're not off course. The United States, as well as the global economy, continues to make advancements. In a lot of areas, we've surpassed pre-pandemic growth expectations. We still have a lot of room to catch up in terms of services and travel and entertainment areas like that. I remain optimistic that we are going to fully reopen, that those companies and those sectors will get back to and above pre-pandemic levels. And the shortages, the bottlenecks, the price inflations and things that we've seen now are not a long-term hindrance to growth. They're simply postponing and pulling sales into 2022. The system is still flush with money. The Federal Reserve is not going to raise interest rates until at least the second half of 2022. And so I'm still positive and upbeat on the stock market for at least the next three months, if not, you know, well into the spring of 2022. And I know there's a lot of naysayers out there, but even looking at the turbulence that we've had recently and going back just to last month, the month of September, the broader markets have only sold off about 5%. And what I find really encouraging, if you go back to September 20th, that day was one of the more significant sell-offs that we've seen all year. But what I found most interesting about that pullback was that it was the fourth largest amount of inflows into the stock market since 2008. The level of hedge funds and institutional investors that bought in on that day were significant and near record highs. And so while I know a lot of retail investors are panicking right now, I think the smart money is coming in and buying these dips because under the surface, there's a big rotation taking place that's really favoring the reopening type stocks and the value oriented cyclical type companies. So take a look at the performance over the last couple of weeks of not only the energy companies, but the banking sector, the hotel travel and leisure companies. They're holding up, and I think on a relative basis, they're going to continue to do well for the next three to six months, and we could see a similar run-up in these type companies that we saw back during the first quarter of 2021. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. If you want to know how I'm investing my money and what I think about the stock market, you can read my blog over at investablewealth.com and listen to my commentary on the Wealth Setting Podcast. 
Until next time, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns. I'll add to it that I think due to supply chain problems and how they're exasperated by reopenings, while I don't make any excuses for what these evil bastards, I guess is the nicest term I can come up with, are doing to us in the United States and around the world, I do think some level of this is being actually throttled back the speed of reopening and allowing uh, more travel, etc., to actually keep a lid on a pent-up economy. Because if you right now, this minute, removed all the restrictions everywhere in the world overnight, and I, to be clear, I would do it and say the pain must be had and let's have it all at once and let's get it done, but if you did it, Today, by the end of the week, you would see shortages like you can't imagine. There'd be a lot of pain. There'd be a lot of panic. There'd be a lot of rapid sell-off of things and rapid buying of things. It would be, it would be really hard to go through. But we would go through it pretty quick. But they don't want to do that. They don't like. There is no political will to allow any suffering of the population except the suffering they tell you you must endure because they said so. People will endure the suffering of being locked down because they're sheep. People will endure the suffering of being given experimental shots. right? People will endure being told they must cover their face to go out in public. People will endure all this shit. They won't endure for very long not being able to get their tacos for Taco Tuesday delivered by DoorDash. So... With that mindset, I think they're actually throttling some things back. And I think there's some other nefarious crap in it. Uh, like, I, I think one thing they really want to get done before they fully reopen, at least in the major economies, is central bank digital currencies. Because then they can actually control spending. That's how evil that is. But the the as an investor looking at this, what that tells you is there is a lot of upside in the economy in commodities uh, as far as investment right now because the demand is waiting as they slowly reopen these things, right? And it, it's it's clear right now that they're doing it either because they're evil bastards, which I think is true, or they're doing it for the reasons I just gave you, which I also think are true. Both of those things are true because there's no need for it. If you look at the state of Texas, if you look at the state of Florida, you can't tell there's a quote-unquote pandemic right now. You can't do it. You can't come. If you come here and you live right now in a state like Oregon, Washington, California, New York, etc., Michigan, when you walk around, you'll feel like you went back in time five years. It just, it's, it, I recently was listening to a podcast. It was a Bitcoin podcast. And the guest told the host, in Texas, the pandemic's over. And, and the host is like, no, there's still people dying and there's still people in the hospital. And there's like, there's always people dying. There's always people getting sick and there's always people in the hospital. And the guest corrected him and said, I didn't say that nobody got a disease. I'm saying the pandemic, the actual problem, which is all created by government, is over. We don't have it. And that is true. And the fact that you can have a state like Texas just exist. We don't have people falling over left and right. We don't have people collapsing in the streets like the fake-ass films that came out of China. That shows you right now we don't need to do this. We don't need to do this, and yet they're doing it. So then you have to ask why, and then you have to ask what does it mean to me as an investor? Because an investor, I don't want to go give a bunch of money 
to th something I really don't like. But on the other side of it, when it comes to the investment game, I need to understand what's going on. And I need to profit from it. So I think that John's advice was spot on there. With that, we have a question about, is there a such thing as a protein bar that really is good for keto that doesn't taste like, well, ass? Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Wade. Wade says, can you recommend a bar replacement or recommendation? So like a meal replacement bar. Details, I live a busy lifestyle, I own two businesses, I have two kids, only one wife, homestead, hobbies. This doesn't always leave time for a meal. Having a bar or two in my backpack is super convenient, but the low-carb bars are just too disgusting to eat. The others are packed with carbs, soy, or worse. Uh, thanks for the question, Wade. I agree with you. Most of the protein bars, in air quotes, or low-carb bars are full of carbohydrates. They love to count net carbs, not total carbs. So anytime you're, any of you guys are about to eat a healthy protein bar, look at the total carbohydrate count, not the net carbohydrate count. And if the total carbohydrate count is higher than the protein amount, then what you're about to eat is actually a carbohydrate bar, not a protein bar. And so I'm glad you picked up on that weight. Um, the, it, now, if you need a bar in your backpack, like your bug out bag, or you're going camping for three weeks or, or hiking or hunting for two or three weeks, then my favorite is the Keto Brick. Uh, it's a thousand calories. It's got good, healthy fats, good, healthy protein, and it's very, very low carb. And it's very, it's very shelf stable. You can actually put it in your bug out bag in your trunk or, or take it in your, your, when you're going to be out in the woods for two weeks. And it, it, it's very stable. It's, it's small enough that you can carry several of them. And a thousand calories, uh, in one bar is going to get you through an entire day in an emergency, especially if you've got some stored body fat that you need to lose anyway. What, what I do, I'm, I'm kind of busy too. Uh, what I do is on Sunday evening, I'll boil two dozen eggs and I'll fry up three or four pounds of bacon and put them in Ziploc bags in the fridge. And so I can grab a Ziploc bag full of boiled eggs and bacon, throw it in my bag if I'm going to be out for a day or two. Uh, there, there's no chance of spoilage in one or two days if they're in your bag, even if they're in your car. They're just not going to spoil in 24 hours. And that way I know I'm eating real food that's high in, in protein and also high in healthy fats and also very, very low carb. But if you're going to be out more than three days, then Keto Brick would be my answer. I hope this helps uh, a lot. Thanks for having me on, Jack. It's always a pleasure answering these intelligent questions. Talk to you next time. So let me add to what Ken said, and let me be frank with you about a Keto Brick, which I do have a link to the Keto Brick for you today in the show notes. I have links to everything you heard about today under council member and content-specific links in the show notes. Uh, on the Iron Air batteries, I've got them on the booster cables and DeWalt inflator, Keto Brick, and the other things I'm about to talk about. So if you want to find any of this stuff, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and pull up episode 2971. All right, so um, the Keto Brick, Ken had some of these with him last year at the uh, TSPC workshop that he came to. And one... Everybody that tried it said it was gross, and they had really mangled it, and it was like a pile of crumbs, so I didn't even try it. 
Another one had been cut in pieces, so it didn't look like whatever the mob did to it with the other one. And I tried it, and it was okay. In general, I think they make a fine survival bar. <laughs> I really do. Um, they might have been some older ones. I don't know. I don't know. But it wasn't like the consensus was, boy, these things are delicious. I'm just saying. And maybe people have different preferences. Um, but nutritional profile is great on them. Um I, like Ken, when he was talking about bacon and eggs, you know, being able to take those with you, have them out, you know, not having refrigeration for a day being no problem with a hard-boiled egg and some cooked bacon, absolutely. And I think that we are better off making keto food portable rather than trying to make something that was never keto into something keto. So in my interview with Ken this week, we talked about how you probably don't need to be going out and buying, you know, keto bread or keto tortillas or anything like that when you get started on keto, especially in the beginning, because you're giving an addict, you know, you're giving an addict, uh, you know, methadone, right, instead of in drugs. And you, it's going to lead to making bad decisions. Inevitably, the claims about the, the net carbs end up being not quite true. Uh, my wife is probably going to get a glucose meter. We're going to do some experimentation on some of these products and see, you know, how keto they really are. But when you just start out with something that's good to eat, that's portable, that you can take with you, that doesn't have to be refrigerated, you know, it could certainly go a day without being refrigerated, you're in good shape. So some of my favorite things like this, uh, Dietz and Watson, you might be able to find these in a, in a local store. I have a link to where you can find them on Amazon Fresh. They have two um, kind of portable snack pack size meats. That, that I, I really like both of them. One is a truffle salami, and the other one is a chorizo medallion. And again, I have links to these things. But let me just look at one of them real quick and give you an idea of how well they fit with keto. First, they have zero carbs because they didn't put any sugar in them. Because funny enough, you can actually make sausages and chorizos and salamis without sugar. You really don't need sugar in them. So um, a package of these guys is three ounces. And that gives three servings. So the numbers I'm going to give you here are per ounce. So an ounce of this product has 80 calories in it. So uh, if you took the whole packet with you, uh, you'd have 240 calories in it. They, they come in like a divided packet, like two little snack packs. And you can cut them in half. They're made to have that done with them and stay sealed. So then you'd have 1.5 servings. But of an ounce, 80 calories, calories from fat are 50. And calories from protein are 30. Now, generally, we're targeting somewhere between 70% to 80% of our calories from fat on a keto diet. Um, but it doesn't have to be. And we want to get a certain amount of protein. And we don't have to be afraid of protein. But what you're looking at there is, is about 62.5% of your calories coming from fat, which is damn, which is totally keto. Like, you don't have to worry about that at all. It's, 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 it's not quite the level of the caloric intake if you eat a ribeye steak and eat all the fat with it. But it's... It's solid. Like, it's don't even worry about it. Don't worry about counting your calories if you're not eating carbs with it. Like, just go on and eat as much of it as you need to. Now, I don't, I don't advise you live on salami and chorizo every day. But that's an example of something that can be, you know, part of your lunch. So you could cut one of these things in half and take a one and a half serving. So what are you at then? Uh, 120 calories of your meal. And you've got a really great source of fat and protein. And then you can come up with some other things. Other things that work like this, um, you know, a lot of summer sausages and stuff, 
but also on Amazon Fresh, the last time we put an order in, I found a, a chorizo that's more of like a, like kind of like a summer sausage in the way that it's delivered. It's a, it's a big chump. And you cut pieces off it. It's called Three Little Pigs Chorizo. And I won't go into the math, but it's got an even better um, ratio of fat to protein in it. And it is really high quality. It's high quality enough that if I was going to make paella, I would make paella with it. And, and that, that says something about the quality of like a Spanish-style chorizo. So things like that. Another thing, and I've recommended this as an item of the day several times, and I have a link to it as well. Chomps is a great company. You can check all their products out. But some of them do have some sugar in them. But the uh, grass-fed uh, beef and black pepper sticks, those have, like, no sugar in them at all. Or there's something like a half a carb to a stick or something. I wouldn't make a meal out of that, but, again, that would be a good ad adjunct. So when you start looking at all of this, it, it becomes real easy to kind of set your meals up, like, like Ken said, on a weekend and take things with you. And I also kind of got the impression from the original email that it wasn't really about that. It was about there's times where I just don't have time. And in those times, if I have these things in my bag, they'll just be there and I don't have to worry about it. So I would say things like the Deeds and Watson uh, salami or chorizo medallions. The beauty of those is they have like an extremely long shelf life in the refrigerator. They don't have to be refrigerated. You could take them out, have them out of the refrigerator for a day, they're going to be fine, right? But you take those, put them down in your, your produce drawer, or not your produce drawer, like your meat drawer, your deli drawer in your refrigerator, and they're just there. And you'll find yourself eating them, like if you need a snack or something and when you're at home, you'll, they're delicious, right? But then if you need something that day and you don't have time to make up your stuff or you didn't do it over the weekend, then they're just there. So even though they don't just stay in your bag in your car, which kind of sucks for protein bars anyway because they melt and what have you, um, it just to me is a lot more flexible, right? Um, I would not trust them in the break room at an office because people steal food in, in break rooms at offices. But um, like I said, just keep them in your fridge at home. You could even freeze them and uh, take them out as you need them. And then I, I would say that the way they're sealed up and given they're a cured meat, their, their shelf life would be indefinite. And think like that. Like th These are not like make all your meals um, decent watching chorizo, right, or Three Little Pigs chorizo. This is more like hey, build things for yourself, right? Like you could go out and you could get some like 80-20 ground beef. That's a great base product. And then you could season that up in some way. Like um, if you really like the Moroccan-type flavor, the, the seasoning I recommend, I'll add it to the show notes, Ras Al Hunut seasoning would be a really exotic way to do this. And then get a couple pounds of that, maybe three pounds of that. Uh, mix in about a tablespoon of the Ross Alhanut, mix it right in, and make little mini slider burgers, right? And fry them up. Because they won't take hardly any time to fry since they're mini. I mean, make them about an ounce a piece, right? Then we just did a show on, on, on food storage yesterday, right? So take all of them once you cook them, put them on a cookie sheet with a piece of you know wax paper or nonstick foil. Throw them in the freezer. Let them freeze, right? When they're frozen solid, take them and chunk them into um, a vacuum seal bag and vacuum seal them. You can vacuum seal them in a little package. You just take a packet out whenever you want it. Or, you know, if you don't, if you're not the guy that, if you're the guy that doesn't mind dragging out the vacuum sealer, put them in a big bag, throw them all in one, done, vacuum sealed. You need some, open it up, right? Take out as many as you need that day, throw it on the vacuum sealer, reseal it, done. 
right? Just do it before they start to thaw out and you won't have any problems. Like things like that. Like you can you can cook up little bits of food that are in individual packets, freeze it. Nicole was talking yesterday about how like in a box or something. So take like a Tupperware thing and stack them in there so you can find them quickly. And now you start having more and more flexibility. I should probably do a whole show on this, huh? I think it'd be a good show to do a show on, you know, making fast, easy, take with you keto meals and snacks, right? And and I would focus mostly on lunch because I'm a two meal a day guy. And I'm I'm going to tell you those of you that have resistance to the idea of the two meals a day, if you if you'll go. You, you don't have to stay pure carnivore to, to benefit from carnivore. If you'll go pure carnivore, you know, being uh, bacon, butter, beef, you know, and eggs, right, like is your core for a couple weeks, you'll find yourself sliding right into a two meal a day. And then that makes everything easier, and you're naturally going to eat less calories, and you're going to get leaner and healthier faster. And then you can start adding, like, salads and stuff like that. Like, but do do it first. Trust me. Give it a shot. And so I'm going to gear a show like that maybe next week, maybe the week after. All right. With that, let's get into our quote of the day today. Um, I was just browsing on Brainy Quote today. And I, I, I have a bunch of crap going on today. It's making me have to rush things, which I always hate. And then I can't think. So instead of trying to think, I just started using their quote of the day tool. And I just started going through the last few days of quote of the day. And when I saw this one come up, I'm like, oh, it's perfect for what I talk about all the time anyway. William James said the greatest use of a life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. I want to tie that back into something I said on Monday. And Mondays, um, you know, if I'm doing an individual show, I try to do them as live feeds, at least the core of the show. And I did one this Monday, if you haven't heard the show yet. It was episode 2967, 10 Steps to Restoring America. And I ended up saying something toward the end of the show that I had no idea I was going to say when I started the show. It wasn't in my notes. It wasn't planned. But it was about the concept of leaving a legacy and what we really lost in America in the last 100, 120 years. And I said something that uh, Ben on YouTube commented on. And here's what he had to say about that. And he starts with my quote. Quote, one day there'll be someone who I wish I'd lived long enough to know, and I already love them before they're even born. And I, what I was saying when I said that is, that's how your great-grandparents thought when they thought of the potential that you'd be here one day. Your great-great-grandparents thought that way about you before you were ever born, that they'll never, they never would even know you. And this is what Ben said about that. That hit me so hard, Jack. I've already been thinking about what I want for my children and grandchildren, and I'm 21. But to think of my great-grandchildren, the ones I may never meet, but who I can leave behind a legacy for, that makes me want to do something that actually matters and build the life I know is true to me. Um, Yeah, me too, man. Me too on that thought, and me too on that hitting me hard. I don't know if it came across in the podcast, if you only listen to the audio on Monday, but if you watch that video, um, it's funny how sometimes you say a thing, and you had no plans to say it, and you say it off the cuff, and it hits you as you say it, and it causes me to pause, and I have to, I have to pause a second to get to the next thought, because it's so, so damn 
impactful. But the reason things end up being impactful, especially when you're just in the flow as a speaker and what you're saying doesn't just hit your audience, it hits you even though you didn't think it was going to, is because it's, it's freaking true. Because it's freaking true. There was a time that my great-grandfather, you know, and you have many great-grandparents, right? Because you get more as you go back in time. You get four grandparents, so you get eight great-grandparents. And uh, there was a time in history when my great-grandfather was living in Ukraine. And I met this man like five minutes one time. He couldn't even speak. He had a tracheotomy by that point in his life. He was in his late 90s or even maybe he was maybe he had crossed the centurion border and i met him and he was happy he was playing with all the kids and he was bouncing balloons around i was really little but i remember this but when when i know the story of my family there was a time when that man was living in the ukraine and knew he had to get out he went to romania because he heard in romania there were ways to come to america and he came to america and he settled in central Pennsylvania. And the entire road that I lived on as a teenager, my grandparents' house there, the person up the road from me, one house, was my great uncle. The person catty corner to me uh, was, a, was a great aunt. Um, the, the family that lived one more up from my great uncle, they weren't family, but they were treated as family. They came over from Romania. So there was a group of Romanians in, in Ukraine Ukrainians in this one group and they settled in the same place and that man made a really hard decision to take that risk and he was thinking of me my son my grandchildren when he did that I don't have to have anybody tell me that to know that because I grew up with enough people that were not that generation, but the next generation that told me how they thought and where it came from. And this is what made America the greatest nation that has ever existed on the planet. It's not our form of government. Our form of government was such that it was non-restrictive enough for long enough in our time to allow that mindset that is innate and human to cultivate and to grow. And everything that has been done in the last hundred years has been done in a way that has chipped away at it till we have only a remnant of it now. And we sit and we plan our retirement from this mindset. I need to save enough money that when I quit working, I have enough money so that I can spend money until I die. And we pay somebody to advise us how to do that. And our great-grandparents thought, what I do today, I do for people who will be born in the future in my family whom I will never know. Can you see the difference? And the truth is, we've talked a lot about keto and weight loss and things like that lately. And we blame the establishment, we blame the medical community, we blame the big food companies, we blame all of that. And it's true. But it's also true that we choose what we shove in our mouth. No one actually thinks when they go to Krispy Kreme and shove, shove four donuts down their hole that it's good for them. We all know it's not good for us. We all know it's not good for us. 
We go to the store and we buy all this crap in boxes. We know it's not good for us. So yes, they created a situation and they raised us in a situation and they educated us in schools and told us to live on grains and cereals and fruits, which is all sugar. They told us to, to feed ourselves with sugar and we did. We listened to them. But in time, we do have to be responsible and we do have to break the conditioning. We do have to choose the other path if we want to be physically healthy. It's our responsibility in the end. The, the information's out there. The knowledge is out there. Even if it's hard to obtain, and it's not, but even if it is, anything really worth doing or obtaining requires effort. Or it's not, it's not going to be worth doing if it doesn't require. It won't be valued. So the ways by which we can live our lives to leave a legacy... All the knowledge that we need is there for us. And we have to choose how we spend every second of our lives. Every time that clock goes tick-tock, a piece of our life force is gone forever. You spend your whole life. You give your whole life. You literally give your life. And you've given your life up to this second right now to become what you are. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? If you died today, how much would be left undone? And most of us feel like a lot. Do those things. Do those things. Build that legacy. Give your children and your children's children something when you're gone to build upon. And condition in that family line, that this legacy given to you, do not be bound by my dreams, but be responsible with my work. I might leave you a farm. Maybe you don't want to be a farmer. Maybe you choose to sell the land. But don't go piss it away. Roll it into something else that you do want that also is a legacy that could be handed down. Because it should be the case that each generation is wealthier than the generation before. The rich should get richer. And they do. Because they think this way. Because they think this way. The phrase that they use to divide you from the rich does exactly that. It divides you from the rich by taking away the knowledge of walking the path that makes you one of them. The greatest use of a life is to spend it on something that will outlast it, William James. And as I said, to make you understand the value of that, at one time, at one time, your great-grandparent thought to themselves, one day there'll be someone who I wish I'd lived long enough to know, and I already love them before they were even born. Yeah, that should hit you hard. And the reason it hits us hard It's not just because we're grateful for it, but we wonder if we're worthy of it. Because have we ever thought that way? Yes, they took it from you. They stole. They stole this from generations of Americans. But it's up to us to take it back so that we may indeed spend our life on something that will outlast it. With that, we're ready to wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us 
by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, whenever you buy something online, you will help the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And today's item of the day is a brand new one. It's made by a company called Nanch. It's a 22-piece precision screwdriver set. Um, I found this because Dorothy needed to find our eyeglass screwdriver set. You know the cheap-ass little ones? They have like six screwdrivers in them. They're silver, and they have little black heads on them, and they have a little back thing on the little spindle on the back so you can turn them while you hold them in the palm of your hand. And if you own one and you've had it for a while, it's probably held together with a rubber band because the case breaks. Like that one. We couldn't find it. And I'm like, I'll just buy another one. They're like seven, eight bucks. And I was like, you know what? I'm tired of buying those things. They're garbage. So can I find something a little bit better? And I found this 22-piece Nance set. It's not perfect, but the value for the money is there in spades. I have a write-up on it, and I did a video for you on it as well. So I won't say much more about it today. But if you go by the survivalpodcast.com, you can check it out. I highly recommend it used within its limits, and its limits are described in the write-up. So I'll leave it at that today. And with that, let's do our song of the day, guys, so I can get on with these things that have me rushing today. Um, remember, we're trying to trying to guess Jack's Pandora channel that all the artists and music this week are based on. Uh, today, uh, the song I have for you is, I think, really a musical masterpiece that I don't think people realize how great a song this is. It's a beautiful song by Jackson Brown, and it's called My Stunning Mystery Companion. And if you don't think you've heard this song, when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, I've heard this song. You had to have somewhere, unless you lived under a rock for the last 30 years. 40 years, really. Um, it's just a pretty beautiful song. It's done acoustically, standalone by Jackson Brown, where he is at his best. The guy's amazing. I saw him like... Six years ago, as an opening act at a Jimmy Buffett concert, and he was getting up there in years, man. He has not missed a stroke up to that point anyway. He was better than Buffett, and I love Buffett, right? He was great. Um, now, I want to give you all the songs we had this week, and I'm going to give you two more clues in guessing the artist I've based my Pandora channel on. So the songs were Who'll Stop the Rain by CCR, You'll Accompany Me by Bob Seger, so Far Away From Me by Dire Straits, and My Stunning Mystery Companion by Jackson Brown. As I said, my first clue was, every artist or group in this list is probably better known than the original artist. I gave you a bunch of clues this week. My final two clues, number one, Jackson Brown being the last song was planned. Jackson Brown and this gentleman were very close friends and did occasionally do some duets. If you know the space, this is a huge clue. A huge clue. But I'll give you an even bigger clue. I said earlier this week that the person I'm talking about, who the channel's based on, his biggest song was in an 80s movie. Okay, The 80s movie had nothing directly to do with the song, though the song came out and they put it into the movie a few years later. This is the big clue. The song's title is also the title of a movie. The song was based on the movie, and the movie's very, very old, even though the song has actually nothing to do with the movie, other than it was the inspiration for the song. Now, if you can't get it with that, I just don't think you know Jack, and you don't know Jack's music. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. What with all my expectations long abandoned? 
And the future I no longer saw my hand in How I found you is beyond my understanding My stunning mystery companion I know that you don't want to be out here forever on this moon Live among the boxes where all my past lives have been stored. Maybe you were thinking of some place with a garden by the sea, where we could slow down and you could put a little more work in on me. What with all my expectations long abandoned And my solitary nature notwithstanding You're the one who pulled me out of that crash landing My stunning mystery companion Disappears. Maybe you were joking when you said you'd take me for ten years and no more. Maybe you've had the best of me, but you could take another ten years and be sure. What with all my expectations long abandoned? And a life that just gets more and more demanding There's no doubt that you're the reason I'm still standing My stunning mystery companion My stunning mystery companion Thank you. Thank you so much for coming out to hear my songs. Thanks for making me feel welcome. A wonderful audience. Thank you.